Section 10 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 5, Part 2, Meshed the Holy. Shortly after my arrival, a gentleman with a coal-black complexion, a retreating forehead, and an overshadowing wealth of lip appears at the door bearing a tray of sweetmeats. Making a profound salaam, he steps out of his slipper-like shoes, enters, and places the sweetmeats on the table, smiling a broad, expectant of bakshish smile the while he explains his mission. The Sartiep has sent you his salams and a present of sweetmeats, preparatory to calling round himself, explains mine host. He is a Persian gentleman, Ali Akbar Khan, at the head of the Meshed Telegraph Service, and has the rank of general or Sartiep. The Sartiep himself arrives shortly afterward, accompanied by his favorite son, a budding youth of some eight or ten summers, of whose beauty he feels very justly proud. The Sartiep son is one of those remarkably handsome boys met with occasionally in modern Persia, and which so profusely adorn old Persian paintings. With soft, girlish features, big, black, lustrous eyes, and an abundance of long hair, they remind one of the beautiful use of Oriental romance. His fond parent takes him about on his visits, and finds much gratification in the admiring remarks bestowed upon the son. The Sartiep is an ideal Persian official, courteous and complimentary, but never forgetful of Ali Akbar Khan. His full, round figure and sensual oriental face speak eloquently of mutton pilau and other fattening dishes galore, sweetmeats, cucumbers, and melons, and deep draughts from pleasure's intoxicating cup have not failed to leave their indelible marks. In this particular, the Sartiep is but a casual selected sample of the well-to-do Persian official. Leaving out a few notable exceptions, this brief description of him suffices to describe them all. Following in the train of the Sartiep arrive more servants, bearing dishes of kebabs, herb-seasoned pilau, and various other strange savory dishes, which Mr. Gray explains are considered great delicacies among the upper-class Persians, and are intended as a great compliment to me. Although Mohammedans, and particularly Shiite Mohammedans, are forbidden by their religion to indulge in alcoholic beverages, the average high official in Persia is anything but a sanctimonious individual and partakes with a keen relish of the forbidden fruit in an open secret manner the thin transparent veil of abstemiousness that the persian noble wears in deference to the sanctimonious pretensions of the mullahs and sayyids and the public eye at large is cast aside altogether in the presence of intimate friends and particularly if that intimate friend is a ferengi owing to their association in the telegraph service mine host and the sartiep are on the most intimate terms the sartiep soon after his arrival intimates with a humorous twinkle of the eye that he feels the need of a little medicine 
Mr. Gray, as becomes a good physician who knows well the constitutional requirements of his patient, and who knows what to prescribe without even going through the preliminary act of feeling the pulse, produces a pale green bottle and a tumbler and pours out a full dose of its contents for an adult. The patient swallows it at a gulp, nibbles a piece of sweetmeat, and strokes his stomach in token of approval. "'What was the medicine you prescribed, Gray?' "'High wines,' says the physician. "'95-proof alcohol. "'A bottle that the entomologist of the Boundary Commission "'happened to leave here a year ago. "'It was the only thing in the house except wine. "'The patient pronounces it the best arak he ever tasted. "'The fierier these fellows can get it, the better they like it.' "'Why, it didn't even make him gasp.' "'Gasp? Nonsense! "'You haven't been in Persia as long as I have.' yet, or you wouldn't say gasp, even at ninety-five percent alcohol. But how polite, how complimentary these French of Asia are, and how imaginative and fanciful their language. Not having shaved since leaving Tehran, after surveying myself in the glass, I feel called upon, in the interest of fellow wheelmen elsewhere, to explain to our discerning visitors that all bicyclers are not distinguished from their fellow men by a bronzed and stubby fizz and an all-around vagrom appearance. The Sartiep strokes his beard and stomach, casts a lingering glance at the above-mentioned green glass bottle, smiles, and replies, having accomplished so wonderful a journey you are now prettier with your rough unshaven face than you ever were before you can now survey yourself in the looking-glass of fame instead of in a common mirror that reflects all the imperfections of ordinary mortals having delivered himself of this compliment the sartiep's eye wanders in the direction of the ninety-five percent alcohol again and the next minute is again smacking his lips and complacently stroking his stomach in the morning before i am up a servant arrives from a mesh eddy notable named haji mahdi bringing salams from his master and a letter clothed in the fine apparel diplomatique of the orient the letter although in reality nothing more than a request to be allowed to come and see the bicycle reads in substance as follows Salams from Haji Mahdi. May he be your sacrifice. To Gray Sahib and the illustrious Sahib, who has arrived in Holy Meshed from Tehran, on the wonderful Asp-i-Awan, the fame of whose deeds reaches to the ends of the earth. Bismillah. May your shadows never grow less. Your sacrifices, brother, Haji Mola Hassan, whose eyes were gladdened by a sight of the Asp-i-Awan Sahib at Shahrud, and who now sends his salams, telegraphs me, his unworthy brother, that upon the Sahib's arrival in Meshed, I should render him any assistance he might need. Inshallah, with your permission, may it not be withheld. Your sacrifice will be pleased to call and gladden his eyes with the sight of Gray Sahib and the illustrious Sahib, his guest. As might have been expected, the advent of a Ferengi on so strange a vehicle as a bicycle, arriving in the sacred city of Imam Isa's sanctuary, arouses universal curiosity. And not only the Sartiep and Haji Mahdi, but hundreds of big turbaned Meshedi notables, Molas, and Seyuds are admitted during the day to enjoy the happy privilege of feasting their eyes on the latest proof of the Ferengi's wonderful marifet. 
upon receipt of the telegram at Shahrood, refusing me permission to go through Turkestan, I telegraphed to Mr. Gray, requesting him to obtain leave for me to go to the Boundary Commission camp, and accompany them back to India, or reach India from the camp alone. Mr. Gray kindly forwarded my request to the camp, and now urges me to consider myself his guest until the return courier arrives with the answer. This turns out to mean a stopover of seven days, and on the second day immense crowds of people assemble in the street, shouting for me to come out and ride the bicycle. The clamor on the streets renders it impossible for them to transact business in the telegraph office, and several times requests are sent in begging me to appease them and stop the uproar by riding to and fro along the street. An outer door separates the compound in which the house is built from the street, and to prevent the rabble from invading the premises, and the possibility of unpleasant consequences, the governor-general stations a guard of four soldiers at the door. This precaution works very well, so far as the common herd are concerned, but every hour through the day little knots of priestly men in the flowing new garments and spotless turbans representing their new ruse purchases, or the lamb's wool cylinder and semi-European garb of the official bribe, coerce or command the guard to let them in. These persistent people generally stand in a respectful attitude just inside the outer gate, and send word in by a servant that a Shahzedah, relative of the Shah, wishes to see the bicycle. After the first Shahzedah has been treated with courtesy and consideration in deference to his royal relative at Tehran, fully two-thirds of those who come after unblushingly proclaim themselves uncles, cousins, or nephews of His Majesty, the King of Kings and Ruler of the Universe. The constant worry and annoyance of these people compel us to adopt measures of self-defense. And so, after admitting about a hundred uncles, twice that number of nephews, and heaven knows how many cousins, we conclude that blood relations of the Shah are altogether too numerous in Meshed to be of much consequence. Soon after arriving at this conclusion, Mr. Grace Farash, an Armenian he brought with him from Ispahan, comes in with a message that another Shahzadah has succeeded in getting past the guard and sends in his salams. Shahzadah be expletive deleted, turn him out, put him outside, and tell the guards to let nobody else in without our permission. A moment later, the Farash re-enters with the look of a man scarcely able to control his risibilities, and says the man and his friends are still inside the gate. Why the devil don't you put them out, as you are told then? He says he is the Padishah's stepfather. Well, what if he is the Padishah's stepfather? It's nothing to be the Shah's stepfather. The Shah probably has five hundred stepfathers, to say the least. Turn him out. No, hold hard. Let him stay. We conclude that a stepfather to the king, whether genuine or only a counterfeit, is at least something of a relief after the swarms of nephews, cousins, and uncles, and so order him to be shown in. He proves to be a corpulent little man, about sixty, who advances up the bricked walk toward us, making about three extra profound salams to the rod, and smiling in a curious, apprehensive manner, as though not quite assured of his reception. About a dozen long-robed mollahs and seyuds follow with timid hesitancy in his wake. 
Strange to say, he makes no allusion to his illustrious stepson, the King of Kings at Tehran, and plainly betrays embarrassment when Gray mentions the fact of my having appeared before him on the wheel. We conclude that the Shah's stepfather and the little group of holy men clubbed together and paid the Persian guard about a keran to let them in, and perhaps another half keran to the Armenian Farash for not summarily turning them out. He tries very hard, however, to make himself agreeable, and when told about the Russians refusing me the road, exclaims artfully, I was not an enemy of the Russians before I heard this, but now I am their worst enemy. Suppose the sahib's iron horse was a wheel of fire. What harm would it do their country even then? Our most distinguished caller today is Mirza Abbas Khan, C.I.E., a Kandahari gentleman who has been the British political agent at Meshed for many years. He makes a formal call in all the glory of his official garments, a magnificent cashmere coat lined with Russian sable and profusely trimmed with gold braid, a servant leads his gaily caparisoned horse, and another brings up the rear with a richly mounted kalyan. Appearances count for something among the people of northeastern Persia, and Abbas Khan draws a sufficiently large salary to enable him to wear gorgeous clothes, and thereby dim the luster of his bitter rival, the political agent of Russia. Abbas Khan is perhaps the handsomest man in Meshed, is in the prime of life, dyes his flowing beard an orthodox red, and possesses most charming manners. In addition to his ample salary, he owns the revenue of a village near Meshed, and seems to be altogether the right man in the right place. Abbas Khan and a friend of his from Herat both agree that the difficulties and dangers of Afghanistan will be likely to prove insurmountable, at the same time promising any assistance they can render me in getting to India, consistent, of course, with Abbas Khan's duties as British agent. It seems to be a pretty general opinion that Afghanistan will prove a stumbling block in my path. Friends at Tehran telegraph again, advising me to go anywhere rather than risk the dangers to be apprehended in that most lawless and fanatical territory. Nothing can be decided on, however, until the arrival of an answer from the Commission. In the meantime, the days slowly pass away in Meshed. Every day come scores of visitors and invitations to go and ride for the delectation of sundry high officials. Ever-present are the crowds in the streets shouting, Tomasha! Tomasha! Soar Shuk! And the frequent squabbles at the gate between the guard and the people wanting to come in. Above the din and clamor of the crowd outside, there sometimes arise the chanting voices of a party of newly arrived pilgrims making their way joyously through the thronged streets toward the gold-domed sanctuary of Imam Riza, the tomb being situated a couple of hundred yards down the street from our quarters. Sometimes we hear parties of men uttering strange cries and sounding aloud the praises of Imam Riza, Hussein Hassan, and other worthies of the Mohammedan world, in response to which are heard the swelling voices of a multitude of people shouting in chorus, Allah be praised, Allah be praised. These weird chanters are dervishes, who, with tiger-skin mantles drawn carelessly about them, clubs or battle-axes on shoulder, their long unkempt hair dangling down their backs, look wildly grotesque as they parade the streets of the Persian Mecca. Meshed is a strange city for a Ferengi to live in.
Every day are heard the chanting and singing of newly arriving bands of pilgrims, the strange wild utterances of dervishes preaching on the streets, and the shouting responses of their auditors. Conspicuous above everything else in the city, as gold is conspicuous from dross, is the golden dome and gold-tipped minarets of the holy edifice that imparts to the city its sacred character. The gold is in thin plates covering the hemispherical roof like sheets of tin. Like most eastern things, its appearance is more impressive from a distance than at close quarters. Grains of barley deposited on the roof by pigeons have sprouted and grown in rank bunches between the thin gold plates, many of which are partially loose, imparting to the place an air of neglect and decay. By resting their feet on the dome of this sacred edifice, the pigeons of Meshed have themselves become objects of veneration. Shooting them is strictly prohibited, and a mob would soon be about the ears of anyone venturing to do them harm. The two most important persons in Meshed are the acting governor-general of Khorasan and Mardan Khan, ex-governor of Saraks and hereditary chief of the powerful tribe of Timuris. Of course, the governor sends his salams and invites me to come round to the government Konak and favor him with an exhibition. Since our refusal to entertain any more of the Shah's relations, we find that the worthy and long-suffering Abbas Khan has been worried almost to the verge of despair by requests from all over the city begging the privilege of seeing me ride. Knowing that you have been worried in the same way yourselves, says Abbas Kahu, I have replied to them, Is the sahib a giraffe, and I his keeper? Why then do you come to me? The sahib has traveled a long way and is stopping here to rest, not to make an exhibition of himself. An exception is, of course, made in favor of the governor-general and the Mardan Khan. The government compound is a large enclosure, and to reach the governor-general's quarters, one has to traverse numerous long courtyards connected with one another by long, gloomy passageways of brick, where the tramping of the sentinels and the march of retiring and relieving guards resound through the vaults like an echo of medieval times. There is nothing particularly interesting about the governor's apartments, but Martin Khan's palace is a revelation of barbaric splendor entirely different from anything hitherto seen in the country. In contradiction to the dazzling, silvery glitter of the mirror work and stuccoed halls of the Tehran palaces, the home of the wealthy Timuri chieftain is distinguished by a striking and lavish display of colored glass, gilt, and tinsel. Mardan Khan is a valued friend of Mirza Abbas Khan and a man of powerful influence. Besides this, he is a pronounced admirer of the Ingilis as against the Uros and my reception at his palace almost takes the character of an ovation. News of the great Tomasha has evidently been widely spread. Crowds of outsiders fill the streets leading to the palace, and inside the large garden are scores of the elite of the city, mollahs, seyuds, official and private gentlemen. The numerous niches of the walls are occupied by groups of closely veiled females. Trundling through this interesting and expectant crowd was Abbas Khan. Mardan Khan issues forth in flowing gown of richest cashmere shawl material and gold braid to greet us and to take a preliminary peep at the bicycle and to lead the way into his gorgeously colored room of state. The scene in this room is an ideal picture of the popular Occidental conception of the gorgeous East. 
Abbas Khan and Mardan Khan sit cross-legged side by side on a rich Turkoman rug, salaaming and exchanging compliments after the customary flowery and extravagant language of the Persian nobility. The marvelous pattern and costly texture of Abbas Khan's coat, the gold braid, the Russian sable lining, and the black astrakhan cylinder he wears are precisely matched by the garments of Mardan Khan. Twenty or thirty of the most important dignitaries and mullahs of the city are ranged according to their respective rank or degree of holiness around the room. Prominent among them is the chief imam of Meshed, a very important and influential person in the holy city. The chief imam is a slim-built, sharp-looking individual of about forty summers, with a face pale, refined, and intellectual, hands white and slender as a lady's, and a foot equally shapely and feminine. He wears a monster green turban, takes his turn regularly at the kalyan, and passes it on to the next with the easy gracefulness that comes of good breeding and by his manners and appearance he creates an impression of being a person rather superior to his surroundings. Liveried pages pass around little glasses of tea, kalyans, cigarettes, and sweetmeats, as well as tiny bottles of lemon juice and rose water, a few drops of these two last-named articles being used by some of the guests to impart a fanciful flavor to their tea. Now and then a new guest arrives, steps out of his shoes in the hallway, salams, and takes his proper position among the people already here. Everybody sits on the carpet except me, for whom a three-legged camp-stool has been thoughtfully provided. Finally, all the guests having arrived, I ride several times around the brick walks, the strange audience of turban priests and veiled women showing their great approval in murmuring undertones of Kaili Kub and involuntary acclamations of Marshallah, Mashallah, as they witness with bated breath the strange and incomprehensible scene of a Ferengi riding a vehicle that will not stand alone. Altogether, the great Tomasha at Mardan Khan's is a decided success. Scarcely can this be said, however, of the little Tomasha given to the members of Abbas Khan's own family on the way home. Abbas Khan's compound is very small, and the brick walks very rough and broken. Therefore, it is hardly surprising to me, though probably somewhat surprising to him, when, in turning a corner, I execute an undignified header into a bunch of busbies. The third day after my arrival in Meshed, I received a telegram from the British Chars d'Affaires at Tehran, saying, You must not attempt to cross the frontier of Afghanistan at any point. Two days later, the expected courier arrives from the Boundary Commission camp, with a letter saying, It is useless for you to raise the question of coming to the commission camp. In the first place, the Afghans would never allow you to come here, and if you should happen to reach here, you would never be able to get away again. These two very encouraging missives from our own people seem at first thought more heartless than even the permission refused of the Russians. It occurs to me that this, you must not attempt to cross the Afghan frontier, might just as easily have been told me at the legation at Tehran as when I had traveled six hundred miles to get to it. But the ways of diplomacy are past the comprehension of ordinary mortals. What, after all, are the ambitions and enterprises of an individual compared to the will and policy of an empire? 
no matter whether the empire be semi-civilized and despotic or free and enlightened the obscure and struggling individual is usually rated zero 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 russia permission refused england paternally must not attempt cold offish language this for a lone cycler to be confronted with away up here in the northeast corner of persia from representatives of the two greatest empires of the world what is to be done mr gray returning from the telegraph office later in the evening finds me endeavoring to unravel the gordian knot of the situation through the medium of a brown study my geographical ruminations have already resulted in a conviction that there is no possible way to unravel it and reach india with a bicycle my only chance of doing so is to cut it and abide by the consequences i have just been communicating with teheran says mr gray everybody wants to know what you propose doing tell them i am going down to birjand to consult with heshmet e molk the amir of seistan and see if it is possible to get through to quetta via birjand ever hear of dadur queries mr gray ever hear of dadur the place of which the persians tritely say seeing that there is dadur why did allah then make the infernal regions that is somewhere in beluchistan you'll find yourself slowly broiling to death on a geographical gridiron if you attempt to reach india down that way never mind tell them at tehran i am going that way anyhow having entered upon this decision i bid my general host farewell on april seventh and mounting at the door depart in the presence of a well-behaved crowd of spectators in my pocket is a general letter from the governor-general of khorasan to subordinate officials of the province ordering them to render me any assistance i may require and another from a prominent person in meshed to his friend heshmet e molk the emir of kain and governor of seistan a powerful and influential chief with his seat of government in birjand couched in the sentimental language of the country one of these letters concludes with the touching remark the sahib of his own choice is travelling like a dervish with no protection but the protection of allah it is a fine bracing morning as i leave the mecca of khorasan behind and the paths leading round outside the walls and moat of the city from gate to gate afford excellent wheeling the birjand trail branches off from the teheran and meshed road about a farsakh east of sharifabad for this distance i shall be retraversing the road by which i came and shall be confronted at every turn of my wheel by reminiscences of dried fish a mazandarao dervish and an angular steed the streams that under the influence of the storm ran thigh-deep have now dwindled to mere rivulets and the narrow miry trail through the melting snow has become dry and smooth enough to ride wherever the grade permits the hills are verdant with the green young life of early spring and are clothed in one of nature's prettiest costumes a costume of seal-brown rocks and green turf studded with a profusion of blue and yellow flowers Sharifabad is reached early in the afternoon, and the threatening aspect of the changed weather forbids going any farther today. Shortly after taking up my quarters in the Chapar Khana, a party of Persian travelers appear upon the scene, and with them a fussy little man in big round spectacles and semi-European clothes. 
Scarcely have they had time to alight and seek out quarters than the little man makes his appearance at my menzel door in all the glory of a crimson velvet dressing cap and blue slippers, and beaming gladsomely through his moonlike spectacles, he comes forward and without further ceremony shakes hands. Some queer little French professor, geologist, entomologist, or something, wandering about the country in search of scientific knowledge, is the instinctive conclusion I arrive at the moment he appears, and my greeting of bonjour, monsieur, is quite as involuntary as a conclusion. Paruskini, he replies, arching his eyebrows and smiling. Paruskini ingilis, parse namifami? Parse kam kam. In this brief interchange of words in the vernacular of the country, we define at once each other's nationality and linguistic abilities. He is a Russian and can speak a little Persian. It is difficult, however, to believe him anything else than a little French professor, wise above his generation and skin full of occult wisdom in some particular branch of science. But then the big round spectacles, the red dressing cap, and the cerulean leather slippers of themselves impart an air of owlish and preternatural wisdom. Six times during the afternoon he bounces into my quarters and shakes hands, and six times shakes hands and bounces out again. Every time he renews his visit, he introduces one or more natives who take as much interest in the handshaking as they do in the bicycle. Evidently, his object in coming round so frequently is to exhibit for the gratification of his own vanity and the curiosity of the Persians this European mode of greeting, and the profound depth of his own knowledge of the subject. Later in the evening, the women of the village come round in a body to see the Ferengi and his iron horse, and the wearer of the spectacles, the red cap, and blue slippers takes upon himself the office of showman for the occasion pointing out, with a good deal of superficial enthusiasm, the peculiar points of both steed and rider. Particularly is it impressed upon these woefully ignorant fail ones that the bicycle is not a horse, but a machine, a thing of iron and not of flesh and blood. The fair ones nod their heads approvingly, but it is painfully apparent that they don't comprehend in the least how, since it is an asp-e-awan, it can be anything else but a horse, regardless of the material entering into its composition. When supper-time arrives, the chaparji announces his willingness to turn cook and prepare anything I order. Knowing well enough that this seemingly sweeping proposition embraces but two or three articles, I order him to prepare scrambled eggs, bread, and shira. An hour later, he brings in the scrambled eggs, swimming in hot molasses and grease. He has stirred the grease and molasses together, and in this outlandish mixture, cooked the eggs. Off the main road, the country assumes the character of low hills of red clay, across which it would be extremely difficult to take the bicycle in wet weather, but which is now, fortunately, dry. After three or four farsacks, it develops into a curious region of heterogeneous parts, rocky, precipitous mountains, barren, salt-streaked hills, saline streams, and pretty little green valleys. Here, one feels the absence of any plain, well-traveled road, the dim and ill-defined trail being at times very difficult to distinguish from the branch trails leading to some isolated village. 
the few people one meets already betray a simplicity and a lack of gumption that distinguish them at once from the people frequenting the main road. End of section 10. Recording by William Tomko.